So come now, Holy Spirit, come and overrule and overwhelm. As we turn to the preaching of the Word of God, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would overrule and overwhelm my mouth and my words, our ears and our hearing, so that what is said and what is heard is in accordance to the Word of God for the good of God's people and for you, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for your glory. Come and do these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You don't have to hang around in a church very long before you start to hear uh, what can be called church ease or Christian ease, Christian language, church language that doesn't necessarily uh, make sense in the context of what we may or may not call real life. Here in the Anglican tradition in which we uh, reside, we have words like rector and vestry uh, and things of that nature that people don't really understand or think about because we don't use them on a regular basis. But the other side of it is that there are words that are so ingrained in the church that they become part of culture, and when culture uses that word, they may not know what it actually means. And a word like gospel is just such an example. Here in the church, we talk about the gospel. It's a very biblical word. It's in the scriptures. Four of the books of the Bible are referred to as gospels, but the word gospel itself has been sort of co-opted, taken out into the world, do we know what the word actually means? What do we refer to when we use the term gospel? And more to the point, when we use the term gospel, do we actually understand the level of content, the depth of meaning that the word itself carries? You see, when we stop to think, to really think about the gospel, we can be, perhaps we really ought to be, overwhelmed. The word itself, gospel, simply means good news. But when we talk about the biblical gospel, we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we talk about the good news of what the holy creator God has done on behalf of sinful creation. The gospel is the good news of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working in perfect unity for the redemption necessary for sinful humanity. For sinful humanity to be welcomed into God's very life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit achieved redemption. That's the gospel. This gospel work is cross-shaped. The focus of the gospel work is the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, Jesus. So when we use the term gospel, we're talking about the good news that the triune God, working in and through the ministry of Jesus, accomplished redemption and applies that redemption by grace to those who believe, those who have faith. The fullness of God was actively involved in every single aspect of the life and ministry of Jesus. And this includes what we might call the holy trifecta of crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. The fullness of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, was involved with Jesus' crucifixion actively. When it comes to considering the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the crucifixion of Jesus, we pay attention to what scriptures reveal directly. 
And we see in the pages of Scripture that the Father was actively involved in Jesus' crucifixion. A few decades after the event of Matthew 27, a few decades after Jesus' death upon the cross, a man by the name of Paul was writing a letter to a small church in Corinth in Greece. We have this recorded as his second letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 5, verse 21, St. Paul states that God made him, that's Jesus, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. The Father is actively pouring out the wrath of holy God toward sin and sinfulness, pointing that wrath toward the singular direction of the incarnate Son, Jesus. We cannot see the crucifixion, the crucifixion of the Son, the incarnate Son, without seeing the active work of the Father. The Son's clearly active in the crucifixion as well. I mean, it is Jesus who hung upon the cross after all. This is the incarnation of the eternal Son of God who is dying and bleeding upon the cross. We heard that read this morning in Matthew 27. It was Jesus who was crucified. It was Jesus, the incarnation of the Son, who was scourged and nailed to the cross, an implement of Roman execution. It was Jesus who bore the wrath of God for the sins of the world. It was Jesus who, again, as St. Paul writes to his church in Galatia, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And it was Jesus, the incarnate, eternal Son of God, who hung upon the cross, his hands and his, na- his, his feet nailed. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we hear Jesus cry out, we hear a real moment of pain, a real expression of suffering, uh, uh, an expression of brokenness, as he quotes from Psalm 22. Just as Jesus turned to Scripture while he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, and just as Jesus understood himself and his ministry in terms of Old Testament prophecy, so upon the cross, Jesus understood what was happening to him in terms of Scripture. Psalm 22 is attributed to King David. It comes from a real event in his life. Something in King David's life had caused extreme disorientation. Something had caused David a real feeling of dislocation, of forsakenness. He was experiencing, David had experienced a real feeling of abandonment. As he describes in the psalm, the, the enemy is closing in upon him. He's in pain. He feels as though God has turned his back. Jesus upon the cross perfectly fulfills that which David wrote. As death stalked him, Jesus cried out in real pain, in real dereliction. The Father is actively involved in the crucifixion. The Son is actively involved in the crucifixion. But where is the Spirit? This is a sermon series about the work and presence of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, after all. Where is the Spirit in Jesus' crucifixion and death. I submit to you that he was right there, working alongside the Father and the Son just as actively. The gospel accounts of the death of Jesus focus upon Jesus and his cross. And in fact, 
that I can't find it, and perhaps you can, but uh, to my knowledge, there is no reference to the Holy Spirit in the gospel narratives as they tell of Jesus' crucifixion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do not mention the Spirit at the crucifixion at all. Does that mean the Spirit was absent? Does that mean that the Father turned his face away? No, it doesn't. And we need to be careful here because we want to be faithful to what Scripture says. And to do so, to be faithful to Scripture, we have to say two things which seem to be contradictory. We have to say that Jesus experienced real forsakenness, real dereliction, real brokenness on the cross. Else why, why would he cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While at the same time, we have to say that the unity of the Trinity was never broken. And these two things are hard to deal with. But biblically, we must say the unity of the Trinity was never broken, fundamentally because God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The very concept of the name Yahweh is that I am who I am, and I am who I will, never, I will always be. And there is no shadow of turning or change within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as James writes. And so in all of Scripture... What we see overwhelmingly is a profound unity of Father, Son, and Spirit united in purpose and being, co-eternal, co-equal, co-existent, fellowship and purpose. It's not broken even in the cross. In all of Scripture, we see only one passage that explicitly describes what the Holy Spirit was doing in the crucifixion, and that's in Hebrews chapter 9. We heard that read this morning. In the context of describing Jesus as the greater high priest and of his death as the greater sacrifice, we read, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? Did you catch that? What is the spirit doing? Jesus' vicarious and substitutionary death upon the cross at a specific place geographically was applied cosmically through the spirit. That is to say, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 tells us that the real work of Jesus accomplished upon the hard wood of the cross in first century Palestine, just outside of the city of Jerusalem, was applied before God in the heavenlies, in the holy of holies, through the eternal spirit. The spirit, too, is actively involved in the crucifixion. The Father pours out His wrath, the Son becomes the curse, the Spirit takes that to the Father. Author Fred Sanders explains that the Spirit is always active in the accomplishing of salvation in numerous ways. The Spirit brings about the incarnation by causing Jesus' conception. He empowers Jesus in His work, and He is the medium through which Jesus makes an offering of Himself to the Father. Now, I can't help but wonder, however, if Psalm 22 might also help us understand what the Spirit is doing upon the cross with Jesus. I'm not saying the Spirit was crucified, but I am saying that the Spirit was with Jesus in the crucifixion. In Psalm 22, the whole of the psalm is not quoted by Jesus. He only quotes verse 1. But it is not a logical leap for us to think. In fact, it's quite easy for us to think that the fullness of the psalm was in his heart and in his mind. 
One scholar, in fact, believes that on the cross, the mind of our Lord was instructed, comforted, and encouraged by the contents of the psalm, Psalm 22. And so I can't help but wonder, and perhaps you wonder with me, if it is that the Holy Spirit, even in the crucifixion, as he's bearing the sacrifice of Jesus into the heavenlies, the Spirit is also doing a work of witness and testimony to Jesus while he's giving witness and testimony about Jesus. How is it that the centurion sees Jesus crucified, the signs that accompany it, and he says, truly, this is the Son of God, the work of the Spirit. But maybe it is that the the Spirit is taking Psalm 22 and, and helping Jesus endure the suffering that is set upon him. Think about this. For Jesus, as it was for David, pain and suffering does not have the last word. Death does not win. In Psalm 22, David alternates between real expressions of real suffering and real expressions of real trust. In the midst of his pain, the first thing that David does is he looks to the character of God. He says, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. There's recognition that even in the midst of his suffering, there is a reality that is greater than David. He does not shy away from his pain. He continues to proclaim the faithfulness of God. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb have you been my God. So David says in the midst of his suffering, he starts off by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then he says, you know what? This is really horrible. This really hurts. But you are holy, God. And you have been faithful, God, and you are faithful still, God. What David felt became Jesus' experience as his strength was dried up, as his hands, his feet were pierced. David's cry is Jesus' cry. In the midst of all of this, O Lord, do not be far off. Now, verse 21 of Psalm 22 is the turning point. From verse 21 to the end of the psalm, David has a a shift in his perspective. He's still in the midst of suffering, but he cries out, Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. He's looking forward to a time of vindication. He's looking for a time of rescue. He's looking for a time of, dare we say it, resurrection. David goes on to declare that his praise of God, the God who delivers, will expand to the ends of the earth. Just as God's kingdom extends to the ends of the earth, so the worship of God shall be passed down to the ends of the earth. And from generation to generation, and even the unborn will hear the proclamation of God's righteousness. What is it about David, or how is it that David can shift in this way? Because he knows and is known. By God. God is no casual acquaintance for David. God is a very present reality to David. And so even in the midst of feeling abandoned, David clings to someone, to something more real, more concrete, more absolute than the pain he was enduring. Now, can we say the same thing about Jesus? 
We recognize it's not explicitly stated in Scripture, but Jesus, who is the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, co-eternal, co-equal, co-existent with the Father and the Spirit, is in fellowship with the Father even more intimately than David himself. The Trinity is a unified and whole relationship, fellowship. It's unbroken in being and in that fellowship. And even the cross did not, it could not break that unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus' dereliction was absolutely real, but the unity of the Trinity was absolutely unbroken. So the Spirit is present as the Father pours out His wrath, as the Son bears the sins of the world. The Spirit is at work. Could it be? That just as Jesus was buoyed by the Spirit in the wilderness, so he is lifted up upon the cross by that same Spirit. Could it be that as Jesus suffered, bled, gasped for air, and was dying, that he, like his father David, could cast himself upon God because of the absolute connection he had with the Father and the Holy Spirit? Could it be that as Jesus, as he breathed out his last, as he cried out, it is finished, he did so knowing that, like David in Psalm 22, he would be vindicated by God, that praise, universal in scope, would come to the triune God because he has done it. And what has he done? The triune God in the cross of Jesus Christ has accomplished redemption. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we say in our 39 articles, one living and true God everlasting, without body, parts, or passions of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker, the preserver of all things, both visible and invisible, three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, accomplished all that is necessary for the reconciliation and adoption of sinful humanity to holy God. This morning, we have seen that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were active and involved in the accomplishment of redemption, specifically in the work of the cross. Jesus is the eternal Son in the flesh of humanity. He is the focal point of the work. He's the focal point of the story with the Father and the Spirit, His less-seen collaborators, but they too are actively involved. What difference does this make? Why is it a big deal that we say the triune God worked out the fullness of redemption? Well, I'd like for us to think about three differences. First, uh, sort of a theological uh, importance. It's good for us, it's necessary for us to recognize that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are unified in the work of salvation. The Father sent the Son, the Son operated in the Spirit, and this triune work included the cross. The Father poured out His wrath. The Son obediently endured as He became a curse and trusted in God for deliverance. The Spirit offered up the sacrifice. It's necessary for us to recognize this, to embrace this, because quite frankly, it is too easy in pop theology to conceive of a fracturing within the fullness of God. Right, think about it. We, it's too easy for us to think about the Son being on our team. He's the good guy wearing the white hat. And that the father is on the opposition. He's kind of the bad guy who's cranky and old. And then we have the spirit who's just sort of a helpless bystander in all of this crucifixion stuff. That's not the case. That's not the case at all biblically. 
Rather, it's the opposite is exactly the case. It is the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are bound up in the gospel, the good news. And so it is the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are on our side. Why does the Father send the Son? Why does the Father pour out His wrath upon the Son? Because He loves us. He loves His creation. Why does the Spirit, why does the Son come in the incarnation? Why does He obediently submit Himself to the reception of the wrath? Because He loves us. Why does the Spirit bear up and and buoy up? Why does the Spirit ascend and take and submit before God the sacrifice? Because He loves us. There is no fracturing of the Trinity against us or for us. They are all, Father, Son, and Spirit, on our side, in the cross, working on our behalf. Holy God working at self-sacrifice to receive and save sinners who cannot save themselves. That is a hallelujah. The fullness of God is on our side, doing the work on our behalf for the accomplishment and the application of redemption. That's the first perspective. It's really important for that. If there is no Trinity, there is no gospel. There is no gospel without the Trinity. Secondly, the the simple fact is redemption is accomplished. How do we know that redemption is accomplished and there's nothing left to be done? Because Father, Son, and Spirit have worked together to accomplish it. And if we say that uh, there's something left to be done in redemption, that means that there's something that the perfect God could not or did not or would not do. That doesn't seem to fit what we see of God in Scripture. David finished his psalm, Psalm 22, with the words, God has done it. He has done it. And Jesus died with the words on his lips, it is finished. What more must be done for salvation, uh, the, for the salvation of sinners? Nothing. Why? Because the triune God has accomplished it. The Father sent, the Son worked it out, the Spirit applies, and all of the Trinity is involved in the work of redemption. The Father adopts all who believe in the Son through the Spirit, and that is truly Good news. This is the end of striving. This is the end of us saying, I can save myself. No, you can't. This is the end of us saying, I can break my chains to sin. No, you can't. More than the point, you won't. But there is good news. There is the gospel, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, has acted on our behalf within time and history to save, to do that which we could not do. And that redemption that is accomplished and is applied by the triune God is the reason we can worship, the reason we honor, the reason we can give praise, the reason we have life. It makes a difference because, one, all of the Trinity is for us. Two, the redemption is accomplished fully. And finally, and very personally this morning, we can feel a level of dislocation and disorientation in our lives. But the cross helps us in this. Even as, and maybe especially as, sons and daughters adopted to the Father through the Son and in the Spirit, we can identify with David in Psalm 22 with real feelings of abandonment. Everything has hit the fan, and we can cry out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back to me? What are we to do? 
We can feel as though God doesn't love us because of what we suffer through or what we endure. Well, what did David do in the midst of that? What did Jesus do as he hung upon the cross in real pain, in real dereliction? They cried out to God in their privileged position. They cried out to God as having an intimate relationship with the Father through the Spirit. The Son, Jesus, cried out to God as perfectly part of the Trinity. I would submit to you that in our privileged position, we can do exactly the same thing. We may feel abandoned by God, but when we consider who we are because of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, as sons and daughters adopted to the Father who loves us, when we consider the promises of God through Jesus, the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are brought into touch with a deeper reality, the real spiritual presence of Jesus through the indwelling Holy Spirit. We come into face to face with the triune God who has worked for our redemption. In the midst of our suffering and dislocation, we may feel as God doesn't love us, but the cross puts the lie to that nonsense. We may feel as though suffering is evidence that God hates us, but the cross, the suffering of the Son, is evidence that God loves us. In a sense, then, Jesus fulfilled the reality of Psalm 22 so that we could be in God. God would be with us, even and especially in the midst of deep sorrow and deep suffering. So this morning, we've seen that the fullness of God was actively involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. This is good news that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has accomplished redemption, and we can be delivered from the curse of sin by grace through faith. We can be adopted to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit so that we might have life and give Him praise and worship and honor. We've seen that the fullness of God was actively involved in the crucifixion of Jesus, and that means there's nothing left to be done for our redemption. By grace through faith, that which is accomplished is applied. And finally this morning, we've seen that the fullness of God was actively involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. And so in the midst of our real sin, in the midst of our real suffering, like David, we can entrust ourselves to the triune God, knowing he has accomplished redemption, knowing he loves us, and knowing that he will apply that redemption to those who repent and believe. And folks, this is is gospel. This is good news. The fullness of God has accomplished redemption. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we give you thanks. The good news that you have not left us to ourselves can be, ought to be overwhelming. And so, Lord, as we as we turn to worship you in song, I pray that you would just free our hearts, free our vocal cords to sing your praises. Lord, may our praises rise before you. Holy Spirit, come and be at work in us. Lord, may our praise meet the depth of your love. May we respond with obedience. And may your Holy Spirit be at work to form us more and more into the image of Jesus. Come, triune God, and be at work, we pray, for your glory and honor. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Let's stand together and sing.